Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for uh, check, checking out our podcast. If you're a first-time listener, if you're a long-time listener, thanks for staying. Today, we are going to dive right into a COVID update. I was uh, actually talking to Jake Galdo, my, my frequent co-pilot here, that I hope we don't have to do too many more of these because it seems like things are, are cross fingers uh, getting better. We shall see. But there seem to be kind of a plethora of, of, of papers relating to COVID that really in the last two weeks have come out that really kind of warranted, I think, I think discussion. So uh, we are going to kind of do rapid fire three big papers. The first one we're going to talk about is a famotidine or Pepsid as a treatment for COVID. And that was a paper published just about two and a half weeks ago in gut. We're also going to uh, talk about kind of widely disseminated meta-analysis that is in preprint. They seem to get a lot of media coverage suggesting that lockdown did not work. And we're going to talk about the very serious issues of that paper, in my opinion. And then finally, really hot off the press, the iTech study, uh, ivermectin treatment uh, in COVID-19 high-risk patients was just published in JAMA Internal Medicine. So we got three big papers to go through, and we're going to dive right into them. So first paper, as I said, is, is, is uh, famotidine for COVID-19. I have to admit, this, was, this one, had, you know, I've kind of kept my eye on this. There had been a couple retrospective studies that had looked at high dose Pepsid for the treatment of COVID. And I mean, my first thought was, well, why would an H2 blocker have any effect on a viral infection? It is true that it seems that high dose H2 blockers seem to have some immunomodulatory effect. They actually block interferon release from SARS-CoV-2 infected epithelial cells and have some other potential mechanisms as well. So I think as crazy as it sounds, there is actually some biological plausibility why uh, H2 blockers may have a role, and several uh, retrospective cohort studies and hospitalized patients suggested that patients coincidentally being prescribed uh, famotidine had improved clinical outcomes, and so some interesting information on that. There were some other studies that didn't find a benefit, and there were some studies that found a high dose in, in a case series of unvaccinated outpatients with moderate COVID-19. I think this was the first kind of paper that got people their wheels kind of spinning about why this might work, found that a very high dose of a Pepsid, and I mean high dose, remember, the regular dose of, of famotidine is 20 BID. Uh, this was 80 milligrams three times a day. <laughs> so that's that's a lot of H2 blocker, but they found it was well tolerated and associated with rapid symptomatic and, and physiologic improvement. Again, this was a case series. This was not a controlled uh, trial, so you really can't say anything. So the authors of this study that was just published in GUD just a, a couple weeks ago did do a complete randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study. So this was a, a, a smaller study. It was a phase two clinical trial of oral famotidine. Again, that high dose of 80 milligrams three times a day, and they wanted to look at non-hospitalized patients with mild to moderate symptoms of COVID-19. Like many uh, sort of these studies, this was kind of a pragmatic randomized control trial. So, you know, with, with everything rapidly changing with, the, with the, the pandemic, it's hard to do kind of the classic randomized control trial where you control for all the other variables over time uh, when the standard of care is changing rapidly and, and infection profiles changing rapidly. So as we went from kind of delta to omega, things can change. 
So there's no real way to do kind of the classic randomized control trial in many of these studies. So they do more of a pragmatic type of study to try and try and assess the benefit of afmotidine on resolution and symptoms. This was done in the U.S. in uh, New York, and they basically took a look at patients either who had been recently diagnosed from a laboratory list or from emergency department discharge lists as having COVID-19. Also, this was during the time where there were some isolation hotel admissions, people who were isolated in hotels. They enrolled patients over age 18 who had, again, had a PCR positive COVID-19 diagnosis less than 72 hours prior to randomization and a maximum of seven days of onset of symptoms. They had to be able to use electronic devices because that's how they tracked uh, symptom scores. They excluded patients who were vaccinated. So that's, that's a key piece here is that, is that they did not include patients who were, who were vaccinated, who had received antibody or steroid treatment for COVID-19, who had known autoimmune disease, such as RA or lupus, who had a prolonged QT interval or a, a GFR of less than only 60. So that's all, all I understand. And then, of course, anyone who had uh, who was taking Pepsid at the time of screening, they did, however, have pregnant people allowed in the study. So once uh, patients were consented, what happened in the study is, is they were given a, a dedicated electronic tablet device to submit symptom scores for a period of up to 28 days. And actually, it's 17 symptoms, a wide variety of stuff that you could argue may or may not has anything to do with COVID. I mean, you know, certainly things like cough and, and loss of smell or taste certainly are in there, but lack of energy, you know, muscle pain, you know, eye discomfort were also counted as symptoms, you could argue. They didn't have a standardized that had been a previously validated symptom scale. They actually just did a kind of a standardized Likert scale where they basically tapped on the pad, whether they had no symptoms, mild symptoms, moderate symptoms, or severe symptoms. And then this, they gave a score to each one of those and basically was added up. They also had daily oxygen saturation um, and body weight and temperature readings with uh, electronic devices at home for up to 28 days as well. And so that's basically what happened. And then they randomized patients once they got the pad, either to receive the placebo or famotidine treatment. They actually did consult with the FDA for the outcomes on this and, I, and definitely give them props for that. They note that they kind of were debating, you know, what outcome measures to use. And they kind of felt like symptom score was kind of the easiest thing to do. They defined symptom resolution as days from treatment start to the first of, of no, no symptoms at all or up to day 28, whichever recurred first. So again, that total symptom scores and this pad score thing that it had to be, it had to be less than three. And they were compared using the stratified log rank test, which I think is, is a reasonable statistical test for this. They did do a power calculation and that's going to be pretty critical in all the studies we're talking about today. They basically assumed that a improvement in 20% of patients by day 28 and symptoms would occur in the placebo arm and 50% in the famotidine arm. And based on that assumptions, they would need at least 84 patients to, to find that. As far as the results, the mean age was 35, so younger patients, mostly were females, and most were not obese. Uh, BMI was only 25 to 27 in the study. So again, these may not be the tip of patients who are at risk for severe COVID. And so basically between January 2021 and April 2021, they actually did not get all the 84 patients they needed. Only 56 patients were enrolled and 55 were included in the ITT analysis, so they did not meet their power. They also uh, did ITT analysis out of a protocol analysis, I think kind of frankly just doing a little data mining to see what they could find any benefit from. I also give them credit. I didn't think this would be possible if they actually did random plasma samples of famotidine to see if people were taking the drug. So and that's something that you don't see in most randomized controlled trials. So I, I give them props for uh, managing to convince an IRB that draw blood levels to, to check for famotidine levels. And I don't even know how you check for famotidine levels, but, but, but they apparently did that. And so uh, what they found was that medium baseline total scores were similar between the groups 18 and the famotidine arm and 18 in, in the placebo arm. Average symptom durations was also very similar as well. None of these patients had were hypoxic and these were 
people with mild to moderate COVID, so none of them were sick enough to be in the hospital or anything along those lines. And they found that the time to symptom resolution by day 28 was actually not different in the ITT arm, although from day 14 onward, approximately two times as many patients remain symptomatic in the placebo group. I think trying to trying to call something good for their data. When they took a look at the linear change rate of, of symptom scores, this is where they really pumped as, as this is a benefit. They found that basically at X time in the future, there was no difference in symptom scores, that patients got better faster with the famotidine compared to the placebo. In fact, to quote the paper itself, they, it revealed highly significantly different changing patterns between the two arms, which was in favor of the famotidine arm. Again, I think they're reaching a little bit here. You know, you can argue certainly in a study where the primary outcome was essentially negative when you have a secondary outcome that is positive. Um, I was always taught that is at best hypothesis generating and hypothesis proving. So I could certainly argue that, that they're, they're kind of data mining around trying to find something. But the bottom line was that patients essentially their symptom scores got better quicker with the famotidine compared to placebo. And that's really about all they found. They looked at the safety of famotidine. They didn't find anybody uh, had any significant side effects reported. I suppose if anyone had GERD, it was pretty well taken care of with that kind of high dose of, of famotidine would be my guess. The authors of the paper really kind of want to spin this as, uh, this is only a phase two study. We need more patients. We need more stuff. And I mean, you know, uh, you could certainly argue that because they found one of their secondary outcomes that was positive, that may warrant larger, bigger study. I don't know if that's ever going to happen. The problem, of course, is famotidine is generic. So, you know, that means that a drug company is highly unlikely to sponsor such a thing. Um, so it would have to be some sort of a, a public funding agency. And will they pour the kind of money that it would need to take a look at? And I'm not sure that's going to happen. Will there be a phase three study that kind of falls up on this that, that really has to have enough patients to actually show, you know, a difference in not only symptom resolution, but I would argue needs to show a difference in progression to, to severe symptoms as well. I mean, I think at this point, that's that's really the minimum marker we can really have for, for an outpatient COVID treatment is not only, gee, their symptoms got better two days faster than the patients who, who didn't receive the therapy, but I think we really do need to show that the risk of progressing on to severe COVID requiring hospitalization um, at a minimum, I think, is is is, is really kind of the, the, the low uh, low floor of, of, of clinical outcomes we now need to look at, I think, with, with, with the current state of how things are with COVID, you know, here in in almost March 2022, basically. So that's what that study is. So you know, kind of an interesting paper. Again, it did have some, some noise in social media and, and some of the big medical news outlets. I was unimpressed, and I'm certainly not going to be recommending high-dose Pepsid for really this or any other viral infection I can think of until more data comes out showing it's beneficial. Next study we're going to take a look at made a much bigger splash on, on social media and just regular media as well. And again, we're going to kind of veer out of, of talking about pharmacotherapy but there was a, a, a working paper uh, that came out of, of Johns Hopkins um, a few weeks ago that took a look at the effect of lockdowns. And if you can't hear my air quotes uh, over the podcast, that's what I'm doing now, because that's actually one of the big strikes of the study, in, in my opinion. But again, it made a huge splash, especially media outlets who tend to think, who wanted to, to, to basically say that, that lockdowns were bad and were harmful and all these other things. So of course, as you might imagine, that is kind of the narrative that was that was talked a lot about. So when you, when you get right down to it, and take a look at, at it again. It's a meta-analysis that looked other studies, because that's what meta-analyses do, looking at the effect of lockdown policies on mortality. And that was their outcome. Meta-analyses are always tricky tools, right? When my students, when I do journal club with my students and, and they want to do a meta-analysis, my glib response to them is usually, well, okay, it's your funeral. The problem with meta-analyses is that they're, they're notoriously difficult to review, especially because remember that primary point of a meta-analysis is basically combine studies that are smaller, studies that don't have 
have enough power to show the show an answer that you really want to see, where we basically have multiple different studies, some studies showing a benefit, benefit, some show a study showing not, and you have kind of a tiebreaker, basically. So that's really the purpose of meta-analyses. And when done well, experts in this field kind of feel like good meta-analyses have as much power as randomized control trials, that well-done meta-analysis actually can be, can show causality and not just association. And so meta-analyses are very, very powerful tools, but because you're combining a whole bunch of other studies, primary rule of reading meta-analyses is that it's garbage in, garbage out. If you have terrible studies going into your analysis, you're probably going to have a terrible analysis and a terrible result as well. So that's something that you have to kind of keep in mind. It's one, one of the key pieces of meta-analyses is how did they pick, pick the studies and what was their criteria for picking studies and they only, did they only pick certain types of studies and things along those lines. And so it's important to remember this is a working paper that's in preprint only. It has not actually been through peer review as of this date. It only resulted in about a 3% reduction in mortality. And again, many people who felt like any sort of, of non-pharmaceutical intervention on COVID was bad or wrong or things along those lines really kind of hyped that to the ceiling, basically. And so let's take a look at the study. You know, First up, um, one of the big things that, that many people have, have, have criticized this meta-analysis for is that they use the term lockdown. And really, when they're talking about lockdown you know, in the United States, that kind of brings to mind, I think, the, the best we probably ever did, or worst, I guess, depending on how you look at things, was shelter-in-place orders, right? So you know, certainly, if you remember the beginning of the pandemic, several uh, principalities, cities, you know, even states uh, had shelter-in-place orders where basically all but essential businesses were closed, and people were told to kind of stay in their homes and only go out when they absolutely needed to. Now, remember, this is a, and I'm glad to be in this, is a democratic republic. There was very little way to enforce that. So, I mean, I certainly, where I live, I think people for a while were terrified enough of COVID that they didn't do that, but I knew quite a few people who just ignored it and did whatever they wanted to do anyway. So you can argue that shelter in place is probably the closest that I think most people in Western countries anyway think of when they think of lockdown. And that's not what they looked at in this study. When they said lockdown, they basically, and I'm quoting from the, from the paper now, lockdowns are defined is the imposition of at least one compulsory non-pharmaceutical intervention. So basically masking, closing schools, travel bans, they were all counted as lockdown. That's going to be pretty problematic right from the get-go because now you're looking at a whole bunch of different studies, looking at a whole bunch of different non-pharmaceutical interventions and looking at one outcome. So it'd be like if I said, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to do a meta-analysis of treating heart attacks and I'm going to uh, look at studies that have statins, look at studies that have PCI and look at studies that go to cabbage. It's going to be almost impossible possible to do a study like that because you have such disparate interventions. So that's one of the big, big problems of the study. And again, the other big problem of the study is that they, you know, what studies that they choose to do in their meta-analysis. And frankly, they, in all reality, basically ignored every single study that showed a benefit. And in my opinion, they, they kind of did this in, in kind of a kind of a shadowy way. So there's a number of ways, of course, to, to look at the impacts of, of, of some sort of non-pharmaceutical intervention on a pandemic. The first is, of course, is a modeling study where you can look at the epidemic curve before and kind of predict what happens uh, uh, where it would go, assuming the conditions on the ground don't change, and then you see where the curve actually went after the lockdown was initiated. And several studies that did that basically found that, yes, uh, lockdowns significantly decreased death rates. And again, this is when we're talking lockdowns, we're talking about shelter in place only, basically. None of those studies appear in the analysis. In fact, they excluded all modeling analyses. Then they looked at before-after studies, and this is a pretty simple one, right? So you say, okay, what was the death rate before we instituted the, the, the non-pharmaceutical intervention, and what's the death rate after we did that. And again, several studies, including studies done in well-done journals, found exactly the same thing. The shelter-in-place orders, in fact, did decrease mortality significantly, 
they didn't include those studies either. So, you know, again, it strikes me that, that again, they, they kind of leaned toward uh, not selecting papers that may find a benefit because they didn't use, you know, a couple of the very standard ways epidemiologists would look at mortality in, in this sort of thing. So there's a couple of other things as well, but I think, you know, for the sake of time, we won't belabor that point, but just is their results in, in the in a meta-analysis is that they estimated that it decreased uh, corporate mortality by about 2.9%, which if you take a look at the total population is about 27,000 people in the U.S. I would argue that isn't, you know, zero, but, you know, yes, you would probably not describe it as something that's probably worth the economic and other issues. Again, I think you have to kind of take a step back from a, from an ethics perspective. But again, they basically set up the meta-analysis to exclude anything that really found a benefit. They also had a very strange way of even the studies that found a benefit, not giving them much credence, basically. So one of the things that's done in a meta-analysis is, is when you have a whole bunch of different studies, you have to have some sort of way to assess their quality, you know, so if, especially if you're not comparing all all uh, randomized control trials. If you're you know, saying, well, I've got three randomized control trials, I've got two retrospective cohort studies, I've got one uh, case control study, you've got to come up with a way to basically assign quality scores to each one of those. In their weighting scores, they basically gave very little weight to any studies that showed a benefit and great weight to studies that did not show a benefit. And in fact, uh, one of the big studies that really makes up most of the power of the outcome of their meta-analysis found only a 1% difference. The author of that study itself actually actually tweeted that he contacted the authors of the paper and the authors of the paper told him that they didn't care because they had already made up their minds about what the result was going to be and they weren't interested in hearing him. So again, I don't know if that's true or not. Again, there's no way to prove that. But I mean, it seems to me that certainly like these economists had their minds made up. It's important to keep in mind also these were not epidemiologists. In fact, they didn't have any epidemiology help at all in doing these sort of studies and basically ignored or gave little weight to studies of went against bias. But they've taken this and media outlets have spun this to mean that any sort of non-pharmaceutical intervention is not helpful. And I would argue that is most certainly uh, not what you can say from the study. And again, I'm not saying that that we can say the exact opposite, but I'm saying that this paper, this meta-analysis was essentially not very well done, in my personal opinion, extremely biased and, and really should not be used to, to shape public policy one way or another. So that's enough for my editorializing on, on that papers. Uh, the last paper we are going to talk about today was ITEC study just published in the latter part of February in JAMA Internal Medicine. The ITEC study stands for I ivermectin treatment in COVID-19 high-risk patients. It was a multi-center open-label randomized control trial done in Malaysia uh, between May 31st and October 25th, 2021. You may ask why Malaysia, yeah, certainly in countries that don't have the socioeconomic means, uh, ivermectin is prescribed far more commonly than it is in, in Western countries. And so that might be one way. And I think they probably had wanted to find out for sure if it actually did anything or not. So that certainly makes sense. In the study, what they did is, again, like the Pepsid study, they, they looked at patients who were PCR positive for COVID-19. They were over age 50 and had at least one more comorbidity, including diabetes, hypertension, lung disease, things along those lines. They'd use the WHO clinical progression scale. So these were people who had symptoms two to four, so not bad enough to be hospitalized, but certainly mild to moderately ill. And they had to have symptoms within seven days before they could be randomized. They were excluded if they didn't have any symptoms, makes sense. If they required supplemental oxygen or had pulse oxes of less than 95% at rest, they also excluded severe hepatic impairment, acute medical or surgical emergency, 
pregnancies, other concomitant viral infections, uh, malaria, stuff like that, pregnancy or bread, breastfeeding, warfarin therapy, which makes sense, and then history of taking ivermectin or other drugs, antiviral drugs with reported activity against COVID-19, including hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, et cetera, et cetera, within seven days of treatment. They used high-dose ivermectin, and it was, it was body weight calculated, but it was, it was definitely higher than the doses you would use for scabies or things along those lines. They administered the first dose on reanimation on day one of enrollment, followed by four doses on day two. Uh, through seven. The primary outcome in the study was a portion of patients progressed to severe COVID-19, and they defined that as basically requiring supplemental oxygen to maintain SAO2 of 95% or greater, or having uh, progressing to the WHO clinical progression of five to nine, which are patients who are usually hospitalized or, again, on all the way up to mechanical ventilation and death. They did use uh, a pulse ox that was standardly calibrated throughout the uh, protocol. Secondary outcomes included time to progression of severe disease, 28-day in-hospital all-cause mortality, mechanical ventilation rate, ICU admission, length of hospital stay after enrollment. Um, they also did assess a symptom resolution as well. They also wanted to look at adverse effects, and they and they graded these according to the common technology criteria for adverse effects, which is a standardized way to describe and look at the severity of adverse effects. Their sample size, just like the Pepsid study, is going to be important because we want to make sure we have enough patients to see what's going on. They assumed that the expected rate of the primary outcome would be 17.5% in the control group, and they wanted to see at least a 50% reduction in that or basically a 9% absolute risk reduction. And so to do that, they needed 462 patients to show the study. The stats seem reasonable to me, and they, I think they all made sense. Between May 31st and October 9th, 2021, they enrolled actually 500 patients, of which four were excluded. So they certainly made, met their power. Baseline demographics were similar between the groups. Average age was 62, 267 women, so about 54% women. And this study, unlike the PEPSA study, did allow vaccinated patients, and but, I, but only half of patients were fully vaccinated with, with two doses of COVID. COVID-19. Uh, BMI was lower than you would see, uh, I think, in many Western countries. So that's that's a problem with external validity, I think. And most of these patients had at least one and mo most had two or three comorbidities, including diabetes and uh, hypertension and things like that. So um, when they take a look at the primary outcome, 19.4% of patients progressed to a severe disease during the study period, so more than they thought in their power calculation. Um, and basically, they found that 21% of ivermectin patients did progress to a severe disease compared to only 17% of the standard of care. So actually, in the primary outcome, though there was no statistically significant difference, numerically, you were actually more likely to go on to develop severe disease if you were randomized ivermectin compared to a placebo. There was no significant difference in any of the other outcomes, both primary or secondary for the pre groups. However, there's still, you know, as you might imagine, a pretty strong contingent of people who, you know, I, at this point, I think no amount of evidence is going to convince them one way or another. They note that in the paper, the 28-day in-hospital mortality was 1.2% for the ivermectin group compared to 4% for the placebo group. And that did not reach statistical significance, but it was close to the P of 0.09. And again, I, what I've seen on social media is that people are saying, well, you know, if they'd only had more patients, they would have found this. Well, maybe. But remember that the primary outcome was not statistically significantly different. And when you have a secondary outcome that is statistically significantly different that you didn't design the study for and don't have power for, it is at most hypothesis generating and not hypothesis proving. So I don't think you can and can take to the bank and say, well, you know, the it, this really shows that it does help with mortality. I just don't think that's true. And I would refute that this is nothing but an interesting uh, finding that absolutely could just be due to the play of chance, but maybe somebody else will take a look at. We still actually do have a couple of large ivermectin studies on the way, uh, one done in, in the UK that should be huge. And, and maybe that'll be it. Maybe that'll finally answer the question. We'll have to see. But, but at this point, this study does not really show any benefit of ivermectin and really kind of adds to the growing amount of literature that really doesn't do anything. And it's worth noting that 
33% of patients in the ivermectin group had, had significant diarrhea, and one patient died from hypervolemic shock due to diarrhea. So there's that as well. So um, at this point, again, not thinking that ivermectin really has any benefit in the treatment of COVID. So, so that's it for this week. A lot of information to throw at you guys, and I kind of apologize for that, but that's the way things go. As we know, with COVID, things change rapidly, and keeping you guys up on the latest stuff so you don't have to sit down and read all the studies is, is kind of our job here at, at Game Changers. So thanks for listening. We will see you next week um, at our next Game Changers. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thanks for listening then. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes. And check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com, where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.